I've been given the privilege of preaching four Sundays in a row. Several have suggested or asked if we could have some series on marriage. And they talked about it at the preacher team meeting and said, you know, that's a good idea, why don't you do it? I said, okay, uh, so I'm going to do it. And our series is beginning uh, this morning, Marriage, the Honored Gift of God to All Mankind. Marriage, as defined in Scripture, is an honored gift to all men. As the rain shines on the just and the the unjust, as the rain comes down on the just and the unjust, so God has given this grace to all mankind. We're living, however, in a time when marriage has been redefined in our culture as a lawful union between any two people regardless of their gender. It is essential, therefore, that we elevate marriage as God designed it back to its honored place. And for a Christian, a marriage is to be a picture of the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his church, Paul said in the book of Ephesians. It is a permanent relationship reinforced by the words of Jesus. And it is a protected institution protected in the Ten Commandments with the prohibition of adultery. And I believe it is to be honored. I believe we need to reverence the institution of marriage. It is so uh, uh, lackadaisical and slipshod these days. And uh, I believe it needs to be celebrated, even as Jesus in his first miracle at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. After 45 years now of laughing and crying with married couples in every conceivable circumstance, I've come to believe that one of the basic reasons for the dissolution of marriage is a basic lack of knowledge about what the Bible says regarding marriage. I'm going to see if this thing works today just like last week. <clears throat> so, when all, us, when all else fails, it's time to go back and read the directions. God instituted marriage, and he did so in the very second chapter of the Bible. He then wrote an instruction manual, which follows with specific instructions and many principles to guide us in marriage. But the instruction manual is of no value if we don't know what it says. And the author of Proverbs in Proverbs chapter 29 verse 18 said, where there is no ro'eh, God's revealed revelation. Where there is no revelation, the absence of God's word, the people perish. Where the the teaching of God's word is unknown, the people will stumble. That's what the author of Proverbs said, and I quite agree with that because we see that so prevalent in our culture today, especially in our churches. Now, before we get into this, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. We're going to have to get a new one, I guess. I want to give this disclaimer. These messages are not intended 
to untangle the past. Nor are they intended to create guilt and shame in the present. We start wherever we are with regards to marriage in the present and look to the future. Now you may find yourself having never been married, married for 20 years or more, never been married but would like to someday. You've been divorced and remarried, divorced at the present time, divorced and a single parent. That's tough duty. Married, but your mate is unsaved. That probably represents some here this morning. Married, separated at the present time. You have a good marriage, but it's under stress. There are serious problems, but both want help. Or you or your mate might be saying things like this. My mate wants to get a divorce. We have never been in love. My mate is indifferent and seems to love another. We do care about each other, but our marriage is dull. Now, I'm sure there are other circumstances represented here this morning, kind of like the guy who came into my office in Anchorage one day. He was 30 and asked if I would marry him and his just barely 18 pregnant girlfriend. Something didn't seem right about it, and I did some checking, and he had married four previous women and had never bothered to divorce any of them. Kind of a low-risk marriage partner, wouldn't you think? Obviously, I declined that one. Simply stated, if a person... If a person's underlying assumptions about love and marriage are wrong, no amount of effort will produce success. Many enter marriage with little or no knowledge of God's design. And the results are to be expected. It's kind of like the airline pilot who was lost, didn't know where he was going, but announced that though they were lost and didn't know where they were going, they were making good time because of a strong tailwind. That's kind of like a lot of people entering marriage with no uh, idea of what they're doing. So please turn in your Bible to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading at verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. We're going to stop right there. And before we go on, I want to pray. Father, I ask that as we consider this whole thing of marriage and the thing of aloneness, I pray that the Holy Spirit would uh, instruct us through your word. I pray that we might receive information, Father, some perhaps for the first time, of what you have set up in your word as the foundations for a godly marriage. And I pray, Father, that the marriages represented here this morning would be strengthened and protected by the teaching of your word as it is applied to our lives. For I pray in Jesus' name, 
Amen. The very first thing in all of God's creation which he proclaimed not good was man's aloneness. Here, Adam, in a perfect environment without Alaska mosquitoes, purpose, tending the garden, divine protection, a whole new world to explore, no mortgage payments, no taxes, in the peak of health, in the prime of life, it wasn't enough. Mankind's oldest problem, aloneness. Now this does not mean that being single is somehow inferior or wrong. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says that it's good. And singleness in certain situations is better. Okay, we've heard from Ian and Justin. Anybody else want (laughs) to? So, in Adam's case, God made a woman to resolve the aloneness issue. Verse 18, I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now the word helper here, used elsewhere in scripture, is describing someone who aids or supports as a friend or ally, not as a subordinate or servant. It is used of God in Psalm 46.1, where it says he is a very present help. Is God in time of need? Is God uh, inferior, subordinate? No. And yet, many men view their wives as inferior, subordinate, uh, a servant, perhaps. Uh, Rather than entering into a partnership with with another person, they become relegated to servanthood. But in Scripture, a wife, as given to Adam here, is, a, is the same in essence and intellect, equal in goal and purpose, and equal in value and worth. And Peter said to, in First Peter 3, 7, he said to husbands that your wife is an heir together with you, of the gift of life, of the grace of life and living. Uh, There's an equality here. And it's important that we understand that from the get-go. But before God created Eve, he gave Adam a divine object lesson in human self-awareness. Verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And so out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. God brought the animals by two by two, and Adam says, he named them, Andrew and Alice Alligator. Barney and Betty Bear. No. He categorized them. He identified them, put them, put, put them into their uh, species and so on. An evidence of his intellect uh, immediately after creation. But in the process, at the end of verse 20, but 
Adam, for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Reading on in verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in his place. Then the rib which the Lord God created for man, he made into a woman. Martin Luther often referred to his wife as my rib. This was not a condescension, but a, a testimony that she was and he with him were complimenting each other as a whole. In the last part of verse 22, it says, And he, God, brought her to man. Here is Adam, and God brings her to him. Now picture this. Here comes Eve walking through the trees to Adam, wearing absolutely nothing but a smile. Now you guys picture that very briefly. What would you say? What would you say? Well, here's what Adam said. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Is that what you would have said? No. And it's not what Adam really said. That, this is now as a Hebrew exclamation. What Adam said was, Wow! Woohoo! Wrap it up! I'll take it! Eve! You're the only girl in the world for me. (laughs) Literally. But marriages begin that way, most marriages. But what happens? So many times the wow turns to ow. Verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now I read that from the old King James authorized version for a very obvious reason. Cleave rhymes with leave. And I thought up weave all by myself. At the root of most marital breakdown is a violation of the instructions in this single solitary verse. This verse is quoted five times in Scripture and is the foundation upon which all subsequent teaching in Scripture is based. God created the institution of marriage and every truly fruitful marriage finds its foundation right here in the 20 words of these verses. And there are three fundamental foundational actions we all must take in marriage if we hope to have a fruitful marriage. One must make an active choice, an active choice to leave certain things and cleave to a certain person and intentionally begin to weave one's lives together into one and to do so without surrendering one's personal identity, not as a codependent relationship, but an interdependent union. This morning we're going to consider the first of these briefly, leaving and cleaving, 
And then the next three weeks, we'll talk about weaving. Marital wholeness is a process, not an event. I have concluded in the last 20 years that more and more people have fallen in love with weddings rather than understanding that the wedding is only a starting point in a lifelong marriage. And that marriage is a road, not a destination. It begins with an intentional choice to leave certain things. And I've chosen four illustrations this morning. The first one, of course, is leaving mother and father. Now, what does it mean to leave? Scripture teaches for a Christian, as an adult believer, we must continue to honor our mother and father in their old age. We have become responsible for them. When we were a dependent, we were responsible to them. And I take from this that God is saying more than just leave your mom and dad. It's a principle. There are things in life that we need to leave behind when we get married. The first is to leave, the first of four examples is to leave mom and dad. Now to to leave literally means to break one's dependency, to cut the emotional umbilical cord. That certainly involves more than geographical location. You can live next door to your parents in marriage and not be emotionally dependent upon them. Or you can live 3,000 miles away and still be in the bondage of dependency. Whenever one's attachment to his family of origin takes priority over his new family, the new marriage is in trouble, and it's in violation of God's stated instruction. A few years ago, Joe and Sally came into my office. Joe was a... um, an ex-Marine, tough dude, lieutenant that led his whatever platoon or whatever uh, in engagement in Afghanistan. And he and his bride, a godly, uh, beautiful young lady, came into my office after they had been married a year or so, and all doom and gloom. And I listened for just a little bit. It didn't take long in this case. And uh, the problem was obvious, and I just turned to Sally, and I said, Sally, you have placed your husband in competition with your mom and dad, and he's going to lose every time. And I looked over at at the tough Marine, and he had melted into a soft marshmallow. I had nailed it on the head, and and that's exactly what, he, what the problem was. Even he couldn't figure it out. And she looked at him and saw his response. And that was the end of the problem. He became the priority over his mother and father. When we do not leave mom and dad, it's going to bring contempt. I'm living with mommy's little boy, I'm living with daddy's little girl. It brings contempt. Cut the apron strings. 
That doesn't mean forsake your parents, but it does forsake your dependency on them. And then leave certain people. And I'm talking here about previous romantic and or sexual relationships. If one emotionally hangs on to previous relationships, it will inevitably lead to comparison and discontent. And when we do this, our memory always becomes selective. And our mate will come in second best every time. Adultery in our mind is still adultery. Marriage is an exclusive union. And this is just one of many reasons that the Word of God instructs us to moral purity both before and after marriage. And there are many probably represented here this morning who have to go through the exercise of bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ because of the soul ties that you have with previous relationships. If that is true, give them up and do battle to bring every thought captive in the obedience of Christ for your sake and for the sake of your mate. The solution to marital discontent is never found in another relationship, whether past or present, whether physical or emotional. And a third example is in our pursuits. As men, we tend to get uh, over-invested in work. We get attaboys, we get value and affirmation and applause, a a sense of self-satisfaction. And if that's the case, if that's where all of our emotional eggs are laid, the wife is going to be left out in the cold. And she's going to feel in competition with your job. Ladies, often tend to live their life through their children to the exclusion or to the subordination of the husband. Kids come to go. Your husband's going to be there all your life. And you look at divorce charts. After 20 years of marriage, the charts go up sharply and then down again at about 25 years. Why? It's marking the time in a married life when kids leave the home. And mom and dad wake up realizing that they're living with strangers and often divorce. Unresolved and undisclosed problems. Now I want to say before I go on to you men, I learned real quickly in my early ministry life that I could just give myself crazily to ministry. 80 hours a week, shoot, nothing. Man, just pouring myself into it to the exclusion of my wife and my family. Because I got lots of attaboys when the church was growing and it felt good. And the 
church ministry became my mistress. If you want to look at it that way, it had come between me and my wife. I had to confess and repent of the sin of over-investment in church ministry because it became an aphrodisiac, or however you say that. It, it uh, gave me attaboys. It, 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 it was a pat on the back. It gave me affirmation. And I had to repent of it. Unresolved, undisclosed problems. <clears throat> Leave means bringing no known or unexposed skeleton in the closet into marriage. The very last thing I say in premarital counseling session, on the last session, as they're ready to go out the door, if you have any skeletons in the closet, dig them out and tell your prospective mate before you get married. A lack of full disclosure is a violation of trust and inevitably results in conflict. A few years back, Dan and Leah walked into my office. They'd been married 12 years. <coughs> Dan had recently become <clears throat> one of the elders in our church. Long faces, long and short of it. Leah had done something before they were married that she left in the closet. It came out of the closet 12 years later. And it was devastating. Dan felt violated. His trust in this woman had been destroyed. It was something that would have been really very easily dealt with had it been brought out before they were married. But now it was devastating to them. They worked through it and they're doing well today. But it was a real bump in the road that was unnecessary. <coughs> now, two examples of, uh, oh, excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself. Well, pardon? I was a slide behind. I want to go to two to examples, two illustrations. An unresolved past. An unwillingness to forgive in your past. You drag those people into the relationship of marriage with you. Or you were unwilling to repent of personal failures. And you bring that unrepentance with you. Previous to marriage, most people have experienced some form of abuse, abandonment, betrayal, bringing a wounded spirit from your home of origin, any of these things. And what I have come to believe is that abuse in a person's background often is not as serious as our response to it when we're not willing to forgive and move on. I've run into so many people who are being controlled by people who are in the grave, but they're unwilling to forgive. They're unwilling to put it in the past. And so they drag that person and that experience with them through their entire life. When these things are left to fester, 
we will inevitably act and speak from a wounded spirit or from the shame of past sin left uncovered. And the result is the inability to be transparent in the marriage relationship. How often I have said to people in counseling sessions, is that you talking or is that your past? And I've also had to say this many times to women in particular. I wanted to soften this, but it's usually to women that I have to say this. I have to say to them, the problem is not you. Your husband brought this with him into the marriage relationship. And usually it's pornography. And guys, pornography is devastating to your wife. It's destroys. And inevitably, the wife thinks, well, what's the matter with me? Nothing! It's pure lust that comes from an addiction before the person was married. And I know I've, a group this size, I'm talking to some of you that have that problem. You can face it and get help. Or you continue to hide in shame. It's a choice. The solution For unforgiveness is forgiveness. Forgiveness of others and forgiveness of oneself through confession, repentance. It's not optional if we expect to succeed in marriage. The primary loser when we don't is the one who lives in the bitterness of unforgiveness. But it also grossly, is grossly unfair to one's mate. Hebrews 12.15 speaks of a root of bitterness troubling the one who is bitter and defiling those who are all about. When we dip the tea bag of unforgiveness into the hot water of life and living, what comes out upon all about us is bitterness and emotional vomiting. Similarly, an unforgiven present, guilt, the absence of a clear conscience, the consequence of sin covered. It brings a lack of transparency. Authentic. Authenticity doesn't mean perfect. It just means genuine, which brings transparency. In a marriage, nothing draws one's mate to you more than honesty when you really blew it and you come clean. Conversely, nothing is more damaging than covering, excusing, hiding, living in the shadows, the dishonesty that guilt produces when we let it fester rather than uncovering confession and repentance. So, just as when we come in faith to Jesus to be made a new creature in Christ, we have to leave a lot of things. A lot of things are left behind. And so it is when we come into the relationship of marriage. There's a lot of things that need to be left behind. And equal to leaving is cleaving. Verse 24 again. Therefore a man shall leave his father. Excuse me. Therefore a man, ish, shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his isha, female. 
gender-specific words used there in the Hebrew, and they shall become one flesh. This cleaving is a volitional choice. It's an ongoing, continuous action. We're going to have more to say about that in the weeks just ahead. Briefly, I want to set the stage. First of all, the concept. The Hebrew word dabak means to cling or adhere to, to stick, glue, or weld together so that the two cannot be separated without damaging both. Most of your translations say be joined to. That is a better translation than cleave. I told you why I used cleave. It rhymes with leave. When you take two pieces of cardboard and glue them together with super glue, both become stronger when they are united. But when they're pulled apart, fragments of both cling to the other. What a picture of divorce. Marital union and oneness and the sexual relationship within marriage was intended to build a bonding. And it does. That's why divorce is so devastating to all involved. And I just want to say in passing, I think I got time. I went over last week, I apologize. If I go over this week, I'll apologize again. I don't think I'm going to get shot. The staff's pretty tough on me. <clears throat> when two people divorce, and I'm talking to some of you here, uh, and I'm not trying to dump guilt on you. There is such a thing as an innocent party. And there is such a thing as sometimes we just blow it. And we were selfish. There are two reasons people get divorced. Immaturity and selfishness. Every time. In one way or another, it comes back to immaturity or selfishness. Not saying that to, to make anybody feel guilty, but that is the reality. Love is a choice, as we'll see in a minute. It is also a covenant. The wedding covenant is a vow to each other before witnesses sealed by God. God is a part of the marriage covenant every time, even in non-Christian weddings. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus did not make a distinction when he said that between Christian and non-Christian marriages. God instituted marriage, and God, in covenant, joins people together when they covenant to each other. I want to say also that sex doesn't join two people in marriage. You can buy sex on the street. What joins two people is a covenant vow to each other before witnesses with God's blessing. 
I was married the moment Sherry and I exchanged our vows. That's what married me. My commitment and her commitment to me where our character and our integrity was placed on the line when we said, I will. I will love you. I will serve you. I will honor you. And I will respect you, regardless of the words for the man or the woman. Those are the concepts. I will love, serve, honor, and respect you, regardless of the circumstances, till death do us part. Covenant insulates two people during times of crisis. Covenant validates the high value God places upon the marriage union by his personal endorsement of the covenant. And covenant excludes all others and centers one's focus in an exclusiveness intended to bond and bless. And in practice, it is a commitment that says we will never, never, never use the divorce card as a way to avoid responsibility. We will do whatever it takes and spend whatever it costs for as long as it takes to make our union a picture of Christ and his church. No marriage is successful, is as successful as it could be without the assistance of others. Most healthy marriages had help along the way from others, whether friends, older married couples, pastor, counselor, whatever. Don't be too proud to get help if you need it. And then I want to add this one P.S. Whenever in moments of conflict and crisis, whenever the D word is used, that's divorce, as soon as that happens, something irreparably dies in that, wet, in that marriage. Because love is then put on a conditional basis. I will love you if. If not, I will divorce you. That's not unconditional love. That's a conditional love. And something dies in a wedding, in a marriage, whenever the D word is used. Avoid it at all costs. From beginning to end, a godly marriage is rooted in, cho in choice. Love is a choice, always. But I don't love him anymore. It's a choice, not a feeling. Oh, if we could understand that. Love is a choice. It's nice when there are feelings. Man, there are some mornings when I get up, I don't know how in the world Sherry could possibly work up any feelings of love for this critter. I don't know how in the world she could. Well, you know what? She doesn't have to. She can choose to love me anyway. And I her. To love obediently regardless of circumstances, is always a choice. 
Well, that's it. I'm going to close by 12. In the next three weeks, we're going to be directly or indirectly considering what it means to become one flesh. Next week, the sermon title is Your Leaf is Slipping. That's fig leaf. (laughs) Then an anniversary for, excuse me, a formula for a truly golden anniversary. And finally, steady by jerks. That's a colloquialism that I grew up with, which means steady progress, regularly interrupted with crises. Father, thank you so much that you gave us the blessing, the privilege of marital relationship, your purpose and plan for most of us, not all of us. I thank you, Father, that for all of us, your purpose and plan was never aloneness. And I thank you, Father, that in Christ, we are never alone. Single or married, we can have the fulfillment of people in our life and Jesus above all. I pray, Father, that you will bless and protect the marriages that are in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.